So we're at, at the beginning of chapter 12 of Romans, and we're still on the topic of salvation and atonement, so we'll see how much this chapter has to do with that. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Does anybody have a different uh, term than spiritual worship? Service, spiritual service. Spiritual service. What was the one that you said? Uh, spiritual worship is what spiritual mine has. Worship. Mine just says this is truly the way to worship him. Okay, you must have like the... NLT. NLT, okay. I'm looking at my footnote here, reasonable worship. Uh, I believe the Greek word is logikos, which, which you get logic. So it's rational worship and that that seems almost oxymoronish to say that presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God is a rational service but if you think about our well-being our health our mental health our spiritual health our uh, physical health uh, if we use good sense if we get, use good reason uh, we are more likely to have a good body and a good mind. and It might have to do here with balance. I'd have to explore the actual original meaning of logikos, which would get logical, whether it, it has maybe a root meaning in, in terms of balanced thinking and balance, balanced minds. Do not be conformed to this world, this is verse 2, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I should have read on, right? That's one, by the way, one of the hermeneutical keys to a proper interpretation is never stop short of reading on and getting the whole context. So, so our reasonable worship or rational worship is the, having our minds renewed by being transformed. Can we find any real-life illustrations of how that can take place? I'm thinking of rearing children. What would be a way that would not transform a child? Well, yelling and mm -hmm. being very, you know, not respecting them as a human being and treating them... As objects. As objects. Because it can go both ways. You can punish and yell and even be abusive, but you can also be, you know, um, use them to, you know, lift yourself up. Oh, look, at my child is perfect. And yeah. I can dress them in expensive, fancy clothes, and we're so yeah. perfect family. I've met my, you know, parents like that, but it's not about the child. It's about making themselves look good. Great. It's I'm appearance. Parent, it's appearance. So if their child does anything wrong, then the child is shamed severely and, shamed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of my clients, she said, I wasn't born with a mother gene. Mm. So the bonding she had and the love was pretty limited for the child. Well, mm. two children, yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. without love, it's hard to, uh, 
you know, to accept somebody and love them back and so mm-hmm. forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, love is is the most transforming power, isn't it? <clears throat> mm-hmm. True love, genuine love. Mm-hmm. Not, I love you for myself, but I really love you. I brought home a shopping bag from Safeway that I have a picture of. Thank you, customers. We love our customers. <laughs> I bet you do. <laughs> Come back again. We love our customers. <laughs> we love our customers is twice on the bag. I, I photographed it because I intend to use it in a sermon, <laughs> as a sermon illustration <laughs> of what love is not. Yeah, if you don't come back, we're not going to love you anymore. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we love you because of what we get out of you. Yeah. And we just hope you'll come back so, so we can get more out of you. And to me, that is just a total distortion of what real love is. Mm-hmm. So on the converse, the kinds of child-rearing that are transformative are those loving experiences and, and I'll tell you one that comes out of my childhood. I, uh, I, according to my mother, I was not a particularly bad child. I, I was pretty docile and pretty cooperative. But I had a very bad habit. I whined. <laughs> <laughs> and the Oregon weather, I'm sure, had something to do with that. But uh, I whined. And, and also the fact that I should never have been eating gluten and and. Mm-hmm. and dairy and we had both in my breakfast and lunch and dinner so I hated breakfast I just hated breakfast I didn't like anything on the menu whatsoever and I would I I would pout I would sit there at the table with my lower lips getting longer and longer <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I would whine and I would fuss I hate cherries I don't like milk I can't stand mush. We had this kind of protein plus that we ate that was gross. <laughs> and I did this every morning. And my mother would try to t- conjole me, and she'd actually make food into a game. And after my dad and my brother had gone to school, I was preschool, she would... Uh, tell me that this little red cherry was lonely and it needed to go down Jeannie's little red lane. (laughs) (laughs) And she would do all kinds of things to try to get me to eat. But one day she finally decided to lay down the law. If I whined any more, just once, I would be sent away from the table. And finally, she did that. She sent me away from the table and I stayed a long, long time in my bedroom. She began to wonder if she would have to come get me for me to get my breakfast. I finally decided my stomach was kind of telling me, you know, I'm hungry. (laughs) So I came down. But I still whine. So finally she said, if you do this again, I'm going to have to spank you. I didn't think she meant it. I'd never been spanked before. Uh, I just didn't think she would. And so, of course, I whined again. And she took me into a separate room and hardly touched me. <laughs> I mean, it was such a light spanking. I, there was absolutely no pain that I recall. But the indignity of it, of course, mm-hmm. made me really upset. I was mad. I was really mad at her. 
And she took me back out to the living room. And I was like, mean mama, mean mama. She's so mean. And she said, yeah, we're going to talk to Jesus about this. And she knelt down with me. And I was still chanting in my head, mean mama. (laughs) And finally, I heard a strange note in her voice. She was praying. And I heard the strange note. And I looked up at her and she was crying and everything vanished I mean I remember just not saying another word in my head and it was like oh she really loves me you know I never needed another one and I I really believe that I didn't need another one because of those tears I think the, the combination of those that discipline in love with emotion just completely changed everything. And and it wasn't long after that that I had at age five that I had a conversion experience. And I realized I should love my brother despite his heckling and me and teasing me uh, <laughs> instead of whining and fussing about it. And I think a lot of my whining and fussing after my conversion went away. Transforming the love. And it was the love of Jesus that did that. Uh, the sermon was on Jesus and how much he loved us. And it was that love that touched my heart and completely melted me. So that is the not the world's logic. The world's logic is punitive. But God's logic is love. That by the renewing of our minds. So that we may discern what the will of God is and what is good and acceptable and perfect. This idea that we can... Ex- we can know what is perfect by the rules. Is I'm going to use a favorite term now in the North American division, is hooey and blowny. Did you hear Jan Jackson? Mm-mm. He gave a speech at uh, the year-end meetings after annual council, and he was upset, very upset, about the way, direction the church was going. And he talked about the things that the North American Division has been accused of doing, which are false. He said, that's hooey. That's a bunch of hooey. And uh, his his secretary, Alex Bryant, kind of got after him for using such words as hooey and baloney. He said, that's a good word. <laughs> so I'm going to use it uh, that the idea that we can achieve perfection or we can even know what perfection is by merely knowing the rules mm-hmm. is hooey. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not the way it works. True perfection is, is coming into a completely loving attitude toward people, toward one another, toward God, and being allowing Him to love us so that we can love Him back. So my favorite text to use when I'm teaching is 1 John 4.19 we love because he first loved us I consider that a spiritual law that can't be broken that is how love is created anything else on that you want to comment on these first two verses well from the King James you may prove what is good comma an acceptable comma and perfect comma will of God. It seems to me like you said to prove the will of God or 
or something. I don't understand. <coughs> me it's prove prove can mean in old English to test it and prove it by testing. Uh, so like proving gold in the fire. Okay. I, I it may have that connotation. <clears throat> It could mean to prove it in terms of its existence, but that doesn't seem to be what it's saying. Anything else on these two verses? Well, what you're doing is proving what is good. But aren't you proving what the will of God is? And let me tell you what the NRSV has, that you may discern mm. what the will of God is. So I think in the Greek it has a little different connotation than to prove. Well, and also... It doesn't say transformed by the renewing of your following the Ten Commandments or the rules, you know. It says, it really emphasizes again, like the Bible does everywhere, this is a mind change. Mm -hmm. This is a person change, not following the rules. Mm -hmm. The rules come secondary. You follow it because you have a changed heart and a changed mind. And you may not even realize you're following the rules. Right. You're, you're just doing it. I remember when I finally started my journey away from legalism because I, the Laurelwood community was extremely legalistic. And in fact, the entire Northwest was extremely legalistic. I think the entire church was quite legalistic, but there were pockets where it wasn't quite so bad. I grew up in Spokane in those years. So. <laughs> from, I don't know, I think from the 20s, to the 70s, it was pretty legalistic. As I started moving away, I, one of the things that had been a real trial to me as a child was keeping Sabbath holy. I worried all day that I was breaking Sabbath. When I, by the time I, was re I reached 11, 12, 13, I was, I was worrying about all Sabbath day. Was I breaking Sabbath? Well, uh, in, when we were six years old, there was a Sabbath school lesson that was on the investigative judgment. And the reason I know it was when I was six is because years and years later, I was asked to teach that Sabbath school lesson. And it was for six-year-olds. It was it was a kindergarten, actually four to six. And as I read the lesson that I was supposed to teach, and I was supposed to teach it because the regular Sabbath school teacher didn't know what to do with it. As I read it, all the memories came back. You know, it was just like, oh, nothing has changed. You know, they're still using this. And uh, it was all about how if you make one mistake that goes on your record by your record-keeping angel, and then in, when Jesus comes back, he will look at you and say, I'm sorry, but your record says on such and such a day you did not do this or you did this. Mm -hmm. I remember that. And by the time I was seven, it was just so ingrained in me. I was just, I was a dust freak. I would dust the upstairs bedroom on Friday afternoon, and I would dust it several times trying to make sure I didn't miss a corner. Because I just knew my guardian angel would say, you missed a corner of your dresser on May 3, 1964, therefore you can't go to heaven. So one, Sabbath, one Friday, I was taking so long because my brother 
was a collector of shells. <laughs> and you can guess what it was like dusting his room. And I was trying to dust everything, take every shell up and, and dust all around and, and over, and it was taking forever. And I had just gotten to my parents' room. I started in my room, went to my brother's room, came to my parents' room. And my mother, who was watching the clock, said, Linda, Jean, Sheldon, what's taking you so long? Here it is almost sundown and you haven't had your bath yet. Whenever she used my full name, I knew I was in trouble. So before I could answer, she was upstairs. She grabbed the dust rag, all the while telling me, you know, about my problem of not getting the dusting done soon enough. And I remember watching her as she dusted the nightstand. I said, Mom, you missed a corner of that nightstand. She said, oh, don't worry about corners. We haven't time to worry about corners. It's almost sundown and you haven't had your bath yet. <laughs> and I remember standing there in shock and I was like, Mom's going to be lost. How can I tell her that? And I knew she wouldn't agree with me. But I knew it must be true. So I thought and thought and I thought, oh, she must be ignorant. Nobody's ever told her that she'll be lost if she misses the corner of, of the dice stand. So I won't tell her so that she won't be lost. <laughs> because I had heard that if, if you didn't know, if you sinned in ignorance, it wasn't held against you. <laughs> right. <laughs> She was living up to the only light she knew. That's right. <laughs> but I remember when I finally got away from that. And I started keeping Sabbath holy because I had a love relationship with God. And I, it was just natural to spend time with Him on Sabbath. And um, I was brought back to earth with a jolt when my religion teacher here at PUC, Wayne Judd, started talking about Sabbath keeping one day and he was belittling the, our Phariseeism and our, our tending scene to keep the Mishnah <laughs> of Adventism uh, of our rules and he mentioned you know what about climbing trees on Sabbath and I was like I climbed a tree last Sabbath a, a group of us had gone up to near Helmer's and uh, there's a big oak tree there, was, and we sat under and ate our picnic lunch, and then we were singing hymns and climbing trees. And I was like, I'm so free now. I could climb a tree on Sabbath and not be going, ah, I broke the Sabbath. Because we were, we were, it was almost an act of worshiping to climb that tree. It was... It was. It wasn't. We weren't doing it for pleasure. We were doing it because we were just exulting in God's creation. So, so again, discerning what is good and acceptable to God is like Jesus letting his disciples thresh grain in order to eat on a Sabbath day, or like Jesus healing people on the Sabbath day. So this is just a preamble for what comes next. For by grace, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Maybe I should finish this whole section. For as one, 
for as in one body we have many members and it, and not all the members have the same function so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually we are members of one another we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us prophecy in proportion to faith ministry in ministering the teacher in teaching the exhorter in exhortation the giver in generosity the leader in diligence the compassionate in cheerfulness is this also part of our spiritual or rational worship not to think of ourselves more highly i'm the head therefore i am better than the little finger that you are mm-hmm. sometimes i think we think that way mm-hmm. but to think with sober judgment that is really thinking it through am i better than anyone else for as one in one body we have many members and not all members have the same function as we that must be in women That's what we're told. We're not allowed to be a head. Yeah, we can only be a foot, a foot, <laughs> an ankle. What if what if a woman is given a gift, a yeah. gift of teaching or leadership? Is she not allowed to use it because of her gender? The Holy Spirit made a mistake, maybe didn't this, he? Yeah, maybe the See to me, to me that's close to blasphemy to think that way. Uh-huh. It's the Holy Spirit that gives gifts. We don't give them to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And and to say that just because he gave, just because she's a woman, she can't exercise the gifts that the Holy Spirit has mm-hmm. given her is is mm-hmm. is basically uh, setting making, myself up above the Holy Spirit. Right, saying I, we can make decisions that preempt the Holy Spirit. Exactly. That we can set aside, set aside that decision and choose what we think is better choice. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see it as, as very close to blasphemy, if not the real thing. Mm-hmm. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given us. Grace means gift in Greek. But grace here is used in terms of this special favor, uh, the, the graciousness of God and when we, even though we are fallen. So to, he's given to the grace given to us, to us prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry in ministering, the teacher in teaching, the exhorter in exhortation, the giver in generosity, the leader in diligence, the compassionate in cheerfulness. And it seems like the Holy Spirit hasn't been able to give too many people the, the compassionate spirit gift we need a lot more of it in our church anything else in this passage that you see as worthy of note this is what salvation does for us it allows us it, it humbles us it keeps us uh, from uh, holding ourselves up as more uh, as better than other people. Okay, let's look at verses 9 to 12 to 13. One thing that was on my mind, though, was uh, 
the idea of the church being a hierarchy leads to yeah, if, yeah. If if this is a hierarchy of gifts, leadership is almost the last one. Right. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's why we don't need much compassion, huh? It's the very last one. I'm saying this tongue in cheek. I don't believe a bit of it. Um, <clears throat> but it's difficult in a hierarchical situation not to have leaders feeling better and knowing what to tell the rest of us to do and so forth. Well, hierarchy doesn't hierarchy often come as a result of leaders taking on more than is warranted. Well, that's what happens, right? Um, I think of the general conference. Pre- well, the general conference leader back when 19- in nineteen oh one when they voted not to have a general conference president, they had instead a committee, general conference committee, that made the decisions, mm-hmm. and they rotated the chair. And one year, the chair decided to sign his letters, president of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And that's how we ended up with having a general conference president again. I don't know, but I think it wasn't too long. I think it was like 1903, something like that. So it lasted a couple of years. Then. Yeah. Because in 1903, Ellen White was very perturbed about what had happened. She said that we had gone backwards. Mm-hmm. No, she came back from Australia before then. She was in the States. They probably wanted to send her again, but (laughs) I'm thinking if the church hadn't so long believed in Ellen White, if possible, the church would actually exclude her from purview because she's a woman. I think that kind of sticks, even though we treat her like she's a goddess in some circles. Mm -hmm. We have to do that in order to accept her perhaps as a woman. We have to deify her. That's what happened in, in the Roman Catholic Church. You know, Mary becomes able to intercede for us with Jesus. Um... She becomes, in a sense, prayed to, so that's a form of worship, saying Hail Mary and so on. Mother of Grace. Mother of Grace, Mother of God. Yet, nobody's ordained to the, no woman is ordained to the, to the priesthood in Roman Catholicism. So we have the same kind of, we, we've imitated Catholicism an awful lot. But... Uh, let's move on. Let love, verse 9, be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. This is the hierarchy. To see who can love one another the most. That's the only competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Anything in that that you'd like to comment on? Being patient in trouble is the hardest one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And maybe persevering in prayer is the next mm-hmm. hardest one. Mm-hmm. 
though I don't know that we do a good job of outdoing one another and showing honor to one another. I think we kind of, as a church, need to work on that one. Or pray for that one. I think praying is better than working on it. But genuine, well, mine says love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other is the... That's a little easier to do, isn't it? Rather than exceeding one another and showing honor. Mm-hmm. It's easy to do when you honestly care and have genuine affection for the person. Mm-hmm. You would automatically enjoy honoring that person in many ways, but I think often people get honored artificially. Mm-hmm. Because the person's like, well, it's our duty to honor this person. but Or in some circles in the Adventist church, money is a source of honoring, and we have to go out of our way to honor them, mm-hmm. putting their name on a plaque, mm-hmm. um, publicly honoring them. I heard a first person telling me a story along those lines. I was in a Adventist Mecca where a lot of money rolled. Mm-hmm. And it was, I had been invited over to some Shirtail relatives of mine for a Sabbath meal. And I, at, I was young. I was on my way to PUC for my first year. And one of the gentlemen in the room who was a physician uh, heard me say that. And he said, asked me what I was majoring in. And I said, I'm majoring in journalism because at that time that's what I was planning. And he said, oh, do you know Herb Ford? And I said, no. Well, he said, I had the most incredible encounter with him. He said he did a write-up of a hospital in Canada that had received a great sum of money, and he didn't mention one of the donors, and I was one of the donors he didn't mention. And I was furious. So he said, I wrote him a very hot letter reprimanding him for not mentioning all the donors involved in that gift. This is in the review or something like the recorder Mm -hmm. that this happened. And he wrote me a very short letter in reply. He said, Dear Dr. So-and-so, I am so sorry I will try to do better next time. Sincerely, Herb Ford. (laughs) (laughs) He said it took all the heat out of his anger. He didn't have anything more to say. (laughs) Wow. But but really that I have I have been amazed at how on how money speaks. And and to me, it should be wisdom that speaks. And maybe there is a lot of wisdom tied up with a lot of money because people have the money, the uh, economic sense and, and wisdom that they need to get that money. But uh, money alone is does not mean anything, does not make anything. It seems to me that if we really studied the gifts, we would have a great deal more humility of the good kind, not not punishing ourselves and beating on ourselves because we think we're so bad, but a healthy kind of humility where we recognize 
Okay, we're all part of the body. And the Holy Spirit gave us these gifts. And why should we not let love be genuine? Hate what is evil because it hurts our brother or sister. Love, love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And so on. It just seems to to be true. And of course, if you think of this in the next few books, I shouldn't jump ahead, but 1 Corinthians 14. No, 1 Corinthians 12 is on spiritual gifts. And at the end of it, Paul says, I will now show you a more, more perfect way. And we have the love chapter next. So, Paul always ties love and spiritual gifts together. He's, he's, they're in the same basket. Why? Because he always thinks of spiritual gifts as what unifies the body of Christ. And, and if you don't have love in there, you're not going to have unity. It's just not going to happen. That, well, there's two things coming to mind. The King James says, He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. So what would be the Greek of that? What's that? I can... Don't make a big fanfare of it and demand that your name's on the... Yeah. Which verse is that? Uh, eight. Oh, eight. Him that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. Uh, I have the compassionate in cheerfulness. Hmm. So and both those be, Greek, not, not begrudgingly. Not begrudgingly, yeah. Right. So if you if you have a, are a giving person, give uh, not begrudgingly, but give cheerfully. And the last one is that kind of struck me: He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. So oh, that's the compassionate and cheerfulness. So. Oh, the giver in generosity. I see. Therapists, they really enjoy being sad all the time and talking about it. And, oh, I've dealt with this problem and that and, you know, this and that. And they just kind of review it. They just get off on it. They're not doing it with cheerfulness. They're doing it because they make them feel better. They're just giving and helping these poor souls. Well, you know, I'm going to defend them a little bit. Um, They're the ones... They're the ones who give, and they're so empathetic, maybe, that they start carrying those burdens. Is that possible? Say it again. They're, they're very caring people, and they're, they're so empathetic, they start carrying those burdens themselves. They identify with their patients, mm-hmm. or their clients, I think Which is the better is a word. Which is cardinal rule of therapy. You don't identify with your patient. Mm-hmm. You're not your patient. You don't take on their problems, their situations, their roles, mm-hmm. their feelings, their emotions, mm-hmm. their attitudes, their intellect, their bodies. I, I can see that to a point, but I, I'm going to defend empathy because it's, to me it's the foundation of morality. One thing. one thing is one thing, but to start identifying with it. Not identifying, yeah. Except that um, we're told in Thoughts in the Mount of Blessing that we should identify... And the, 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 to obey the golden rule means to identify with people in their... See if I can find thoughts in that yeah. See how she words that. We'll have to look at the context of what she was saying. It's, it's in the golden rule. It's on the chapter of the golden rule. Mm-hmm. Ed, are you saying that you know of other therapists that do that, or are you talking about clients no, that... that do it, yeah. Oh, 
and uh, that's one reason they have so many prohibitions against sharing who people are and their names. Or right, lives. there's confidentiality, and and I don't th I don't think it's helpful to talk about it, but to pray for them. Well, that's a different concept to pray for them. It's like therapists that they see people and they go on a vacation. They set it up in such a way that they're kind of hoping that the patient will call. And I know lots of therapists that have got people calling all through vacations. And now that's co that's codependency. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a little different than what I'm thinking of. Um, I'll have to bring it next week, I guess, because I don't have time to go hunt it down. Where our time is up, um, so we've we've ended with verse thirteen, 13 I guess. and we've if looking on. We're almost at the end of the chapter, so it continues in like topic. So uh, we'll just have to backtrack enough to get the context and and move forward next time. I got to teach less the next week, so I won't be able to be here. All right. Yeah, it's, I'm waiting to get through the New Testament. That's what I'm waiting for. But I, I have no—I shouldn't say I have no clue what we're going to do after that. I don't have a good—I don't—I don't know what we're going to do. I'm going to be throwing a bunch of ideas out to the class, and uh, whoever shows up that day <laughs> gets to help and choose. Be part of the decision. I will write that in an email so that they have a heads up. But. Don't miss this Sabbath. Decision <laughs> time. Yeah. All right. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for your goodness and your love to us. Your ability to carry our burdens when we can't carry them. We ask that uh, we might have not only the gifts that Spirit gives us, but we might not only use those gifts, but that we might have love and all the fruit of the Spirit. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.